This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. For criticizing the Jones Act, should Cato Institute staffers be charged with treason? After some digging through the bowels of some federal government record-keeping, Cato has uncovered some pretty troubling, even if laughable, claims about what ought to happen to think tankers that weigh in against the act. The Jones Act, of course, is that century-old law that raises prices, stymies efforts to ship goods across and among countries, and is, of course, highly protectionist. Cato's Colin Grabo and Scott Linsicum will be waiving their right to remain silent. Scott Linsicum, Colin Grabo. Caleb Brown, Julius Rosenberg. I would like, I would prefer it if we were not ever mentioned again in the same breath as Julius Rosenberg. But um, uh, are you guys going to jail? Because I'm happy to uh, disavow you if that's the case. Well, I, I, I don't think I'm going to jail for this. Important um, clarification. You know, there's, Thank you. There's an infinite. As as our friends at uh, Crime a Day point out, uh, there are so many crimes uh, that you know that's potentially we we could be in jail for all all sorts of things. But uh, it does appear that uh, for the particular charge of treason, based on our criticism of the Jones Act, I think I think we're okay. So where did this come from, Colin? Uh, where did this notion? This seems like. <laughs> to put it mildly, this seems like a stretch goal for these guys uh, to have past and current uh, members, presumably that means staff, although donors might might count as well, uh, of the Cato Institute and uh, Mercatus to be charged with uh, treason. Where did this come from? Well, of course, for years now, the Cato Institute has uh, been steadily criticizing and illustrating the shortcomings uh, of, of failures of the Jones Act. And this has made a lot of people very unhappy. Um, last year, the Cato Institute was provided with uh, emails um, from the U.S. Maritime Administration through the FOIA process, Freedom of Information Act, that showed a lot of collusion uh, and coordination between members of the U.S. maritime industry and the uh, U.S. maritime administration. Well, th this got us a bit curious about what else might be out there. And so, Cato, we started filing some FOIA requests of our own. And the U.S. maritime administration has not been exactly forthcoming with uh, some of these. Uh, a lot of the materials that they provide to us had various items that were redacted. Um, uh, my colleague, Patrick Eddington, he uh, felt that a lot of these were not justified. And so we challenged Merritt on it. Uh, there was a lot of uh, hesitation on their part. Uh, finally, they were threatened with legal action. Uh, they finally decided to cough up the requested documents. And going through them last month, we uh, discovered that uh, members of the U.S. Maritime Transportation uh, System National Advisory Committee, mouthful, uh, comprised of, uh, which operates under the auspices of the U.S. Maritime Administration. Um, these are members from the private sector. They put together a set of draft recommendations to uh, turn around the, the, the fortunes of the U.S. Uh, maritime industry. And they apparently thought it'd be a good idea to uh, uh, to charge members and fully justify to charge members of the Cato uh, Institute, along with uh, Mercatus, uh, with treason, with the high crime of treason, a, a capital offense. 
I might add with with respect to that, uh, a stern warning to the Heritage Foundation for their uh, criticism of the Jones Act. Treason for us, stern warning for them. That's right. Um, that, you know, criticism of the Jones Act is not something that is tolerated. I mean, this really is the crazy part of it, that just mere criticism, that just broaching the topic is deemed to be not permissible uh, by by some members of the U.S. maritime community, evidently. Scott? Yeah. And the other thing I would add is that it was this was just among the many bullet points in in this uh the section of the minutes, right? So you have, you know, we need uh, tariff relief for U.S. ships. We need uh, increased cargo preferences and blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, uh, treason charges for for Cato and Mercatus, um, which, you know, does, of course, raise the question of why is this in there and what, it, who said it and all of this? And it's difficult, of course, to parse this out. It's not impossible. Um, but because it's buried in this bullet points, you know, saying this is, oh, just a funny joke uh, is is kind of difficult to believe. Right. And and then, of course, the fact that Merad uh, so strenuously resisted uh, delivering these documents also indicates that um, if if it was a joke, uh, they didn't really do anything to discipline the Joker. Right. Uh, So uh, regardless of of um, the actual sincerity of the suggestion, uh, it doesn't seem like anybody over there really cared uh, that this was going on in these meetings. Um, and they only did start caring, and they only did start caring once we started digging around for the information. There are no bad ideas in brainstorming, Scott. <laughs> well, you know, and, and this is, you know, what Colin and I wrote in yesterday's blog post, right, is that regardless of who said it, regardless of whether Merad actively considered any of these suggestions. Look, I mean, you know, th- this is uh, a pretty troubling stuff, right? You have a a individual uh, associated with or participating in a government committee uh, that advises the United States Government Maritime Administration um, openly suggesting treason for uh, political speech, right? core protected First Amendment political speech, you know, uh, the foundation of a free society, right? Uh, Beyond that, if you dig through the documents, and we provide a link to the entire cache of documents, uh, 41 pages worth, you can see. But if you dig through, you also see that this isn't the only, this is the most salacious thing in there, but it isn't the only troubling thing, right? Here you have a U.S. administration, a U.S. agency, and the agents, and the uh, industry it supposedly regulates, just openly colluding about how to resist uh, Cato criticism, don't attend a Cato conference that we invited them to, uh, and the openly uh, discussing how to support this law, right? Um, so this is just, you know, just public choice 101, industry, regulatory capture, the agency and the industry colluding against potential critics. And it's all, again, so treason allegations aside, I mean, those are terrible, right? Uh and and certainly, like I said, salacious and sexy. But beyond that, it's just routine uh, collusion and regulatory capture. So uh, while we're all here, let's engage in some of this uh, uh, <laughs> frowned upon behavior. I think it's a conspiracy, right? Uh, let's, let's get into it. The, the Jones Act is a, a 100 plus year old law that severely, at at least in our current context, severely restricts the movement of goods 
throughout states in the United States and across national borders. So what give us a set, Colin, if you don't mind, give me a sense of what's the scope of the of the imposition that the Jones Act creates. So Caleb, you mentioned that you know the Jones Act greatly restricts domestic commerce, and you're absolutely right. In fact, the other day, a waiver was issued uh, for the Jones Act that would allow a tanker to transport liquefied natural gas to Puerto Rico. Uh, this was necessary because it's currently impossible to move liquefied natural gas within the United States. We are the world's leading exporter of LNG, but we can't send it to New England. We can't send it to Puerto Rico uh, because there are no ships to transport LNG that comply with the Jones Act. Um, there are other you know, uh, similar situations you find. Uh, Hawaii, for example, they cannot purchase uh, propane from the, U- from the U.S. mainland because, again, there are no ships to transport. Even when we do have ships, uh, they are very expensive to use, which discourages people from using them, forcing alternative methods of transportation like you know, trucks and rail, uh, or they are in insufficient numbers. Uh, it's a very limited uh, fleet that we're dealing with. So it, it just it, it hamstrings commerce within the United States. It impedes the ability of Americans to do business with other Americans. We live in a very geographically large country. It is a free trade zone or sh- you know, should be one. And the Jones Act basically acts as a, as a barrier to that domestic trade. And this, I think, digs in, Colin digs into the absurdity of our treason allegations again, right? Supposedly, you know, these are on national security grounds. This is a national security law. So you assume that's why we're, we're so treasonous, because we criticize it. But the reality is that the Jones Act's been around for more than 100 years and has presided over the uh, destruction of the U.S. maritime industry um, and the the merchant marine, right? I mean, you're talking about an industry that is it's so expensive to build ships here now that nobody buys those ships, nobody uses those uses those ships, those LNG vessels, and the rest. Um, and so we actually the law actually makes us weaker. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite examples is that we had to borrow foreign ships for sea lift operations during the first Iraq war. Uh, and even uh, thought about asking the Soviets uh, for help because our our sea lift uh, capabilities were so so degraded. Again, thanks uh, in large part to the Jones. And Act. Uh, you know, when we adopt for shipping, when Americans adopt second best alternatives for shipping, that creates yet further costs. Right, right. Um, uh, you know, the one of my favorite things that Cato did before my my. Uh, time here uh, was put up a a billboard on I-95 saying, you know, stuck in traffic, thank the Jones Act. Because, uh, right, it's so expensive to move, say, oranges from Florida to Boston um, by ship that that pushes that uh, freight inland. So they use trains or trucks. So there are more trucks on the roads. There's less available capacity for things that can't move by ship. Um, and that just inevitably uh, makes our transportation system, our inland transportation system, uh, weaker because uh, we're not you know, utilizing uh, efficient uh, transport uh, via ships. Well, I, just let me chime in on that for a minute. I mean, think about the United States, just geographically. We have thousands of miles of coastline. We have some of our most you know, major important cities along our coast, New York, Boston, Miami, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, according to federal data, uh, in terms of ton miles, ships account for just 2% of freight being moved in the United States. That's incredible. 
Um, add in barges and you're at a total of 6%. Just given our geography, you'd think it'd be more than that. So we've taken what should be a major asset for the United States to move goods around the country, given our coastline, given all our major ports, and we've turned our back on it. Um, because we've made it prohibitively expensive to, to use these ships. In fact, Jones Act ships are basically used when there is no alternative. The vast majority of Jones Act ships are used to ship goods to the non-contiguous states and territories, Alaska, Hawaii, Guam, Puerto Rico, or they're used to transport uh, petroleum products to those areas that lack uh, pipeline connections. So, you know, they, they are a measure of last resort. Shipping in most parts of the world is an efficient means of moving goods. And we've made it, again, uh, a measure of la an act of desperation. I want to go back to this. Essentially, uh, Scott, as you described, it's just sort of open collusion. Well, it's not really open collusion. We had to threaten to sue in order to get the documents. Right. Documented collusion. And thank you uh, to Pat Eddington, our uh, sort of in-house FOIA ninja um, for, uh, uncovering that information. Uh, but what's next? I mean, it's not like, it's not, they're just going to say, well, we're going to have to do a better job. We're going to have to make sure that we don't uh, get the treason allegation into the actual minutes of our meetings from now on. And then it seems like they'll just move on. Right. It's like the old wire clip, right? Where, uh, you know, you don't actually talk or uh, document your, your conspiracy. You only talk about it orally. Right. Um, but look, more seriously, the uh, the fact is that this is, like I said, a classic example of what we libertarians warn about when you have pervasive economic regulation uh, and uh, industrial policy protectionism and the rest. You inevitably end up with uh, a an agency that is uh, working hand in hand with the industry it regulates to simply maintain the subsidies or protectionism or whatever is there regardless of, of the national interest. And so uh, the reality is that, yes, uh, this might push their collusion uh, into uh, a bit more secretive forms, uh, but the 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 incentives to operate in this way, the incentives to um, promote a law that is actually bad for the U.S. economy and bad for the vast majority of Americans uh, will continue as long as the law exists, right? It's, it's just inevitable that we're going to have this type of capture. Colin Grabo and Scott Linscombe are scholars at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.